Welcome to today's installment of the Arcananth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Rivera. The Arcananth Podcast is all about societies around the world, their cultures, their environments, their biology. And today we are speaking with another expert on the show, Dr. Sabah Al-Hassan. Sabah, are you there? Yes. Hi. I'm so happy to be uh, having you on the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to receive this invitation. Thank you. I'm excited to, <laughs> to chat today. First of all, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, I've been up and down, I would say, the last couple of several weeks, as probably everyone has been. Mm-hmm. But this last week, I maybe it's just that the weather has been good here. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe also kind of forcing myself a little bit to just think like, okay, this is... This is a situation. This is reality. So you know you can't, can't. You can only move forward. You can't get too. You can only control the things you can control. So this morning I'm feeling pretty good. I went. I was mentioning that I went for a run this morning. So that's something mm-hmm. I never used to do a couple months ago, and now I'm a runner, mm-hmm. and that's definitely a good way to channel a lot of, <laughs> a lot of feelings. Mm-hmm. So not too bad today. How about you? Uh, yeah, I, I feel much the same. Like, uh, you know, it's a delicate balance of you can't uh, deny what's happening, um, but you also have to be generous to yourself and not sort of yeah. force yourself to be hopeful or productive or positive. Yeah. That can put a lot of pressure on someone. So um, yeah, trying to trying to balance those uh, two things. Acknowledge what's happening, accept that it's happening, but also like try to take care of yourself. Yes, 100%. And I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, different forms of productivity. One of some of my colleagues that are getting close to wrapping up their graduate degrees, you know, they've been sending me messages saying, you know, I didn't do anything today. I'm like, well, no, you did something and you're just processing. And that is something that you took the time to kind of take a step back and think about everything. And yeah, just thinking of different ways of how we define what is productive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that uh, actually these these sorts of um, questions were already things that we were asking ourselves uh, even before this, even like, you know, six months ago, uh, it, it's constantly a thing in academia of how do you take care of your mental health while doing something so, mm-hmm. um, you know, at times challenging for people. Mm-hmm. So um, where are you calling in from today? I am based in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that where you're normally based? Can you give the listeners an idea of uh, what your job is at the moment? Yeah, so I work uh, kind of as a joint position, a, as a postdoctoral scholar, and also as a lecturer uh, focused on bioinformatics mm-hmm. at the Scripps Research Institute in San Diego, California. Cool. And I, before that, I finished my, I guess I defended almost a year ago now. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I finished my PhD before that at UC Merced. And I looked at venom microbiomes. Ooh, okay. <laughs> Before we, um, maybe we can go go to that um, a bit later. But like, um, for those who don't know, what is Scripps all about? Like, what do you and your colleagues work on, and what kinds of mm-hmm. uh, problems do you try to tackle? Yeah, you know, I'm also still learning. I've only been at this position for a little over half a year now, mm-hmm. um, but I am kind of part of the bioinformatics group. And our specific group, I work with Andrew Sue's group, and then I also work with the graduate school. But in our group, we focus on open source and accessibility and pretty much bioinformatics related to uh, bioinformatics, you know, research or tools related to 
kind of access. And my personal specialty is focused on Wikidata, which if you go to Wikidata, it's almost like the database version of Wikipedia. Um, anybody can join an account from anywhere in the world and curate it. And so that was one of my big interests in my transition after my PhD is uh, one of my chapters kind of made me think a little bit more about, um, you know, what happens to our research and our data mm-hmm. 50 years from now or 100 years from now and how do we make this more accessible, especially with... Um, of underserved communities and making sure that they have uh, all the tools that they need to to be to have this kind of data literacy uh, familiarity yeah. as a way of agency for their own communities and decision making because now you know we're in the space of Google and Facebook and they have so much control of our information and so Wikidata is kind of this way where anyone can can come in um, and and contribute and be a scientist in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what we work in specifically. But the institute as a whole, it's a research institute. Uh, so we have a graduate school, but it's, it's mostly focused on structural biology um, and chemistry. Mm-hmm. I haven't yeah. had a lot of work or collaborations with bioinformatics scientists. So I'm, I'm really excited to you know, learn more from you. In our day-to-day life, in our societies or things that we have to do day-to-day, what sorts of processes or what kind of industries and, you know, aspects of our lives are actually helped along thanks to bioinformatics experts doing their work for us? Yeah, that's a great question. I think probably an easy one is 23andMe. Um, there's also the Gut Microbiome Project. Those, I'd say, were probably the, t- the two big ones that people might think of the most if we're talking about kind of more strictly bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. Um, but every it's bioinformatics is essentially, you know, think of te- the tech industry or this this buzz term now called data science. And everything is data. And so any day you wake up with your phone and you know you are searching things in Google or you know, you're looking up certain hashtags on Instagram or whatever, that's old data. Um, And some of that data is public. So for example, um, I've actually used Instagram for my research where I worked on this venomous marine snail called a cone snail. There's over 800 species. Um, You might already be familiar with cone snails, I think. But uh, there, there are over 800 species and the species I worked on, I would actually search it in Instagram because sometimes people took pictures mm-hmm. uh, of this animal and then that would actually help me if it was, if their profile was set to public, then I could see where those uh, pictures were located as a way of finding where I would do my collections. Wow. So um, yeah, and that was through Instagram. And so that was one of the sources that I, that I utilized for my own research. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything is data and in terms of the day-to-day there are a lot of easy ways to utilize data as a tool. And of course, like this can be used for good or bad. Um, and, and there are a lot of bad things when it comes to, you know, people's privacy rights being violated too. That are things that, you know, I personally would like to work against. Mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely in favor more of people kind of getting the credit with, that they deserve for whatever they put out there. Um, and, and having their privacy also be respected in the process. So anytime that I've used someone's picture for part of my research, I always credit them mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of, kind of uh, make sure that they're, or they're, they ha- I have their permission um, and, and include them, you know, as in kind of the scientific process. So I like bioinformatics in that it's very, it's, it's very much um, like an open mindset, collaborative mindset, I think, as a discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe a lot of other ways you could think of kind of hard bioinformatics is like the human genome. 
Um, but I'd say more popularly now is, uh, yeah, the human genome kind of falls on 23 and me, mm-hmm. uh, but more popularly now, like the microbiome and people getting really interested in, in the gut microbiome and the gut brain axis and mm-hmm. things like that. You mentioned uh, that a lot of the work that you're doing now is, uh, you know, trying to think about how research data is stored, how it's distributed, um, especially, you know, in the next few decades. Um, but going back first, I'm curious to know, uh, what is the history behind like data science and open data research? Like how long ago um, did these, you know, concepts and this idea of sharing what we have become popular and become sort of like, you know, a hot topic, let's say, in science? You know, that's a great question that I am still learning the answer to. Mm -hmm. So before this, I mostly did um, biology and kind of more, I guess, traditional life sciences and what lab work and, and field work. And now this is my first experience working in a fully computational lab. Um, So I'm learning, I'd probably be one of the most naive to the answering that question in our group Mm -hmm. um, of maybe other people in our group. But I would say, um, you know, it kind of goes back to people when people were first uh, exploring the Turing test, I would say, Hmm. and kind of things uh, starting around then. And there's a lot of great um, kind of tech podcasts on, you know, technology and um, where things started. But I don't know at this time if I have the the best answer for you on (laughs) that question. (laughs) That's okay. So at least for bioinformatics, definitely things exploded around the human genome. So Mm -hmm. human genome started or it was put together kind of as a first presentation around 1999-2000. And before that, people were doing Sanger sequencing, mm-hmm. um, which was a lot more tedious, and it wasn't as uh, massive in terms of uh, biological data or information. Mm-hmm. So I would say after the human genome, which was around 1999-2000, and then again in the mid-2000s when the first gut microbiome, which was a human gut, uh, was put out, I think 2006, mm-hmm. then there's kind of this explosion in omics. And so now people are doing all sorts of omics, proteomics for working on proteins, genomics for genome, uh, genetics, uh, metabolomics, microbiomics, uh, you name it. There's a lot of different omics going on. And that's <laughs> kind of, we're kind of in this, so to speak, golden era where we have just all this biological information that we can get a lot of data very quickly mm-hmm. and put together stories, which of course, you know, sometimes there's a, there's really a balance between, um, you know, getting the information and knowing what to do with that information. And of course it's going to be a better guided, um, answer if you can come with come to it with a question mm-hmm. that you want to explore but then there's also this interesting paradigm shift whereas you know we know the scientific method as you know you develop a question you have uh, kind of methods of, of exploring that question you get these results and then you get your answer and you see if you reject or or uh, support your hypothesis that you had developed in the original question. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing a little bit of a paradigm shift where people will have the results first with all of this big data and omics, and they will ask a question with that information. In some ways, um, you know, it alleviates uh, issues of confirmation bias where people will have a question and they already think they know what the answer is, and, mm-hmm. and that can um, influence or bias what what result they get. Anyway, but that that's kind of specifically. I would say a little bit of the history of maybe bioinformatics. I would mm-hmm. say maybe it started with, um, you know, really genetics and Sanger sequencing. And then when the human genome came out, then that there was kind of, there's been 
an increasing explosion of technological development and biological data um, since that time. Mm -hmm. Even in archaeology or uh, when we're collecting data about human skeletons and anthropology, I I also have seen in like the in my field in the last eleven years where like suddenly the databases are bigger, where people are collecting more data, mm -hmm. they're combining it with other people's, mm -hmm. and suddenly you have a big global project where data has been sourced from so many different contexts, and then they've just been you know, mashed together in one giant spreadsheet or database right. where you, you know, thought about how the, the, the largeness of these, this data and, and how, how challenging that can be to sort of almost like wrap your head right. around. It's overwhelming. Right. Yeah. Totally. And I was just going to say too, when it comes to archaeology and anthropology, I know isotopes mm -hmm. are a big one when it comes to kind of databases and getting a bunch of different information on, you know, how to date something or figuring out where it's from, which is, I think, mm -hmm. really, really cool. Um, in terms of, you know, trying to get a grasp, like where to start, I mean, I still feel that way for sure. And I think, I don't know what your feelings are. I'm sure it's similar, but I feel like the more I learn about things, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much more <laughs> yeah. to learn. Like it's never gonna, and that's really exciting. I think for me, because I, I'm very driven by, you know, new things and I'm very curious about a lot of things. So for me, it's exciting, but it can also be mm -hmm. really tiring. Um, and sometimes I find myself in situations where, okay, I, I'm, you know, maybe a little spread thin and all the things I need to learn about. I think just starting one step at a time. And so for me, when I started my PhD, I knew that I wanted to get more involved in computers and informatics Um and before that, I had only really done wet lab. I had only um, done kind of field collections. And, you know, I remember telling uh, a mentor, you know, oh, I think, I, I think I'm interested in computers. Mm -hmm. And they were like, really? Because you don't really seem like someone who's interested in computers. Like, you don't, it doesn't seem like you know how to program or anything like that. I'm like, well, I'm going to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I was, I was a little, I think maybe them, giving a little bit of discouraging comments also motivated me yeah. in some ways. And so then, you know, when I started, I had this mindset that, okay, I'm going to just at least learn programming. And if I learn that, then I can find data sets that I can start to analyze. And I think one of the nice, for me at least, one of the nicest ways to start is to visualize something. Mm -hmm. So when you have data, when you have, let's say you have like a genome of some, you know, human, some person or, you know, an animal or whatever, you know, maybe you want to ask, um, you know, what, what genes are responsible for the coloration of this lizard, for example, mm -hmm. and how are you going to figure out that information? And so... Um, you, if you have that question, then you can start to explore the data and you can do it kind of through this preliminary data visualization. And it's like almost like a quick and dirty way of looking at data. And then you go back and you clean it up and, mm -hmm. and you kind of go back and forth. And then finally you have this product where you have this answer of like, oh, here are the genes responsible for why this lizard is color the way it is. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to start to, to know where to break down. And so maybe that's where the graduate studies comes in is where you're, you're really, you know, you, you see all this information and at some point you have to figure out what's useful about it and what's not. And you can spend years and decades and people do on, you know, 
dissecting it and and rerunning analysis Mm -hmm. and you know updating it and you know in in some scenarios there are projects i've worked on where there are stuff that was updated and we just had to decide are we going to rerun this pipeline or are we just going to go with how it is and and um, you know, decide to call it at that. And and I think that's also a part of being a researcher is being able to make those kinds of calls and say, mm-hmm. okay, this is good to be, you know, to maintain, this is good for um, being, you know, high quality level, um, what's the word, being a high quality level study that is getting to the the fundamental questions that we're asking versus, okay, no, this is not satisfactory and we do need to redo some things or, you know, go further Mm -hmm. or expand. And, you know, people can really get, I think, sometimes caught in the weeds with that too, where uh, they can find themselves exhausting themselves over details that, um, you know, are probably going to get just replaced anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, one of the ways that I'm still learning of how to navigate this is, uh, navigate the, this, this feeling of being overwhelmed is just thinking, taking a step back and thinking, okay, what am I really wanting to know here? Yeah. And what is, what are some of the most straightforward ways to know this information? And then I can build up more if I want to. Mm-hmm. And working with like these like large databases and using these approaches and methods, did this play a big role uh, in your PhD research? Yes, yes. And so the first year that I started at UC Merced, I did this internship with the Joint Genome Institute and they were very involved with Human Genome Project when it first came out. And then as a result, they kind of formed this research institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I was able to participate in this internship program they had over the summer. And that really exposed me to a lot. I think really what it was is it just, they just, you know, I was kind of thrown into this setting where I was around all of these like they're really like staff scientists and researchers and, and postdocs mm-hmm. that really came in handy being able to just do that kind of vigorous, rigorous um, programming and exploration of the data very early and just kind of be thrown into it with someone else's data uh, through this internship and then being able to then transfer that and apply it to what I was doing was very helpful. Mm-hmm. What were you researching uh, in marine organisms? Yeah, so that's what you're curious. So I, I started in my degree with this general interest in host microbe interactions. I think I'm just generally really like weirdly nerdy about um, like parasites and like microbes. I'm like, whoa, it's so weird. Like we can't even see them, but what are they doing? And people would be like, what? Like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. It just sounds cool. Like, I just want to do it. And uh, I went to a conference about a year in. And I was at this conference, Society of Integrated and Comparative Biology. And in the break times, I would go to these toxin talks. I was at this talk where they were talking about brown recluse toxins, venom. Uh, brown recluses are, are spiders, uh, for those who might not know. And they have this ability that if they bite you, it's kind of like uh, your skin deteriorates a little bit. So or it's kind of like a, what's called necropsis, I think. Uh, but anyway, your, mm-hmm. your skin will kind of die. And so it's really we- weird and interesting venom composition. And they were talking about this spider venom. And then just a very brief section of that talk maybe you know 15 20 seconds of that talk the person that was speaking referenced that there they had done a blast hit so blast uh it's related to ncbi which is one of the major databases that many 
biologists use to find any sort of genetic information. Um, it's federally funded by the U.S. government. Uh, and so basically they show that there was this blast hit, uh, which means that they took a section of the sequence from the toxin, uh, the, the DNA sequence from the toxin, so to speak, and they showed that that matched from the spider to another uh, gene in a, in a bacteria. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that was within like 20 seconds that they said this in a 15-minute talk, and I was just like, what? I was like, that's crazy. And then they just said it in passing, like, oh, maybe there's horizontal gene transfer, which essentially means that, you know, the host uh, and the microbes are exchanging genetic information. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> and so then I was just Google searching for like two or three hours after. This was the day of the talk. Yes. I was just Google searching, like, are there microbes and venoms? Uh, and the results were very minimal. It was maybe four or five studies mm-hmm. and there wasn't a lot of information. And then I was just really curious. I'm like, that's crazy because there's so there's thousands of venomous animals. They have these specialized glands. Mm-hmm. So there has to be, I mean, if we know that microbes pretty much live everywhere, there has to be microbes living in these venoms of these animals. And what are they doing? Are they contributing? Are they just hanging out for no reason? Mm-hmm. Are they harming the animal? What are they doing? Then I was trying to figure out which animal I was going to select. And so in terms of selecting, you know, the, the, it's basically a system, right? It's like a study system. And so why I, I chose this system was, you know, I decided, okay, it's going to be pretty tricky to maybe, I don't really know anyone else that is, that has the facilities for milking venom. So I don't know how to milk venom from an animal and probably the closest, the people closest to me were probably at Berkeley or Davis or UCLA. Um, and, you know, we're in Merced, so it's two hours. And so I was like, okay, I need to be able to find a system that I can figure out how to dissect and get the venom from myself. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of ruled out spiders and scorpions and bees and I just that's that's a lot of stuff that I just don't know how to do mm-hmm. <laughs> and then also maybe the amount of venom was going to be very little so I didn't know if it was going to be enough um, for me to get individual um, samples from from each um, individual animal versus pooling together which is what some other researchers do but I wanted to kind of try to optimize on statistics as much as possible. So I really wanted to see on an individual level what microbes were living in these venoms. So that all those factors coming together, uh, is something that was sustainable. So, I mean, I, as much as I love the idea of, you know, flying to some tropical island and sampling there, it's not sustainable. Um, it, it usually is some form of parachute science, which I, I don't agree with. And I knew it would also involve a lot of money, which I was limited on. And mm-hmm. so I really wanted to focus on something that was more local, um, that I could collect with people and develop relationships with pretty easily. And if I needed to collect something kind of last minute, I could go do that. And it was also sustainable. So then that kind of, that brought me all the way down to the California cone snail, which is the only cone snail of 800 species that is found locally on the California, the Baja coast. So we work with uh, researchers in Baja, California as well. And uh, that was, that was really exciting. And so that involved me diving in kind of the Northern parts and then, you know, gradually uh, they're found in shallower and shallower waters as you go more South, uh, which is kind of interesting because it's actually colder on the Northern side, more on the, on the shallower side. But anyway, um, so then I went all the way from diving on the northern side, more northern side, Monterey, to kind of collecting at low tide in the more shallow. So, so, so you you need to you need to dive for them. In in some areas, yes, yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> do you have to, do you have a special license or, or do you have to get something, a permit? Yeah. I, so that was exciting as well because, you know, here I was, I grew up in Utah, which is a landlocked state. And it was one of my dream, like life goals, just like one of those like mm-hmm. unreasonable goals to have. If you like grow up when you don't have a lot of money, cause diving is very expensive. Uh, you grow up, you don't have a lot of money and you grow up in a place where there's no ocean. I was just like, I'm going to do diving. Uh, but that was a great opportunity during my PhD to basically, I got certified uh, as a scientific diver cool. um, through my graduate school. So that was, that was really great. Yeah. Are you collecting them like in a box or in like a bag or? Yeah. So, so the nice thing is, and this is not, do not, you know, I hope nobody does this on their own, <laughs> but the nice thing is that cones, this species of cone snail, California cone snail is not harmful to people, uh, which makes me sound a lot cooler than I am when I say I work with venomous animals and that, you know, I would collect them and you know originally i would be like wearing these huge like cloth gloves so i wouldn't like get stung or anything mm-hmm. um but you can just grab them with your hand and it's fine if you get stung it's like a bee sting i've never been stung but i guess one of my friends has been um but uh yeah you just have like kind of a netted bag and you just kind of put them in there and they're really hardy too i think an advantage of working with a common species is that they're a lot they tend to be a lot uh, hardier or sturdier mm-hmm. than maybe um um, um and that just more incentive, you know, to be eco-conscious with that, in that regard. And that, you know, I would just have them in a tank in my car driving for two hours uh, back <laughs> mm-hmm. to the campus and they'd be fine. And, you know, I would like, uh, you know, I don't want to say like throw them. Like I, I, I wasn't reckless, but, uh, you know, they're, they're just a lot more, they can, t- they have a really high tolerance yeah. for um, being in different settings. They're used to like an urban environment where like humans right. exist too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can find them pretty commonly in urban environments. You said like you uh, you dissect them. Mm-hmm. Is that uh, gruesome at all, or I don't know? Is it challenging in any way? Yeah, and so and so I always feel sad. So I, I've killed about two hundred of them mm-hmm. at this point, and I always feel sad because we don't really know how long they live, and different species can live a different life span but as far as I know from other people they can live up to at least 11 12 years or so mm-hmm. and I've just yeah it just makes me feel sad every time <laughs> but um the nice thing is in order to maintain the integrity of their venom so so really the things that I'm mainly interested in their venom and their venom you know I did proteomics so I looked at what kind of the toxin the venom profile I looked at metabolites uh, so I did metabolomics um, I did some genotyping of the host to see like what the population mm-hmm. distributions were, if there was pen mixture, meaning if they were very different populations in the same place or similar populations in the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also looked at the microbiome. And so I was really interested in the venom, um, but I think this is something, and this is just, you know, kind of something to, to say amongst all researchers is, you know, anytime I sample something, if I have to kill it, I want to make sure I'm utilizing as much of it as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it can become a practice sometimes for people to just use something like one part of an animal, for example, and then just throw the rest out. Um, So that was something that I was trying to be more considerate of. And so, and then also because of the nature of wanting to maintain the integrity of the tissue, uh, you have to flash freeze them. So this means that you take the snail and you really just throw it I mean you don't throw it but you, you put it in the, you put it in dry ice and you basically flash freeze them so it's almost instant death um, so that is something and 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 on a, and there are studies that show you know the 
the more, the less the animal suffers, usually the better uh, integrity of their tissues yeah, yeah, because yeah. they will start to release enzymes with stress you know, and all yeah, that. You know, activating their, yeah, uh, flight or fight. Right. Yeah. Uh, where, where is the toxin based? So it's in this gland along, it has this snout called the proboscis. And if you look along the proboscis, and that goes into the mouth. And there's this little kind of uh, coil. Mm -hmm. It's it's almost think of uh, you know your intestine. So it's almost coiled similarly like that. And when you stretch it out, it can be as long as you know two or three times the size of the animal. Whoa. And then you have this little bulb, this muscular bulb at the end that kind of pushes out. So that's where that tract is where the venom itself is made. Mm -hmm. And then this muscular bulb is at the end that kind of pushes that venom out and and kind of it will it will load up. You can look up little videos. You know, just type in cone snail eating uh, on YouTube or something. And, and you can see there's, it has these kind of modified teeth. Um, mm -hmm. So if you think of like a regular snail, like aquarium snail, you'll usually see this, it's kind of scraping off the algae and that structure is called a radula. It's basically it's feeding structure, like, like, like these grazing teeth. Mm -hmm. And for cone snails, they have the same because they're also a snail. But instead of that little scraping feature, it's shaped like a harpoon. And that harpoon is then filled with the venom that it shoots into whatever it wants to eat, mm -hmm. and then it will devour it. Right. And yeah. the toxin, I guess, is uh, like uh, stunning the prey? Yeah. So yeah, usually it usually paralyzes the prey. And, and depending on the species, there's different levels of potency. So the second most lethal venomous animal to humans mm -hmm. is a cone snail, actually. So conus magus, I believe. Mm. Uh, the first is a box jellyfish. So they, they have very powerful toxin cocktails that can, they nickname it the cigarette cone because you have basically a, uh, you can smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Um, not endorsing cigarette smoking, <laughs> but I'm just saying you have that, you have a, so you have that amount of time to live basically. I see. You don't get the antivenom. I always thought that uh, if I didn't do anthropology, like, it, you know, when you're like 17 or 16, you have this big book of stuff you could do in college or university. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I always thought like, if I, if anthropology and archaeology didn't catch my interest first, I probably would have just kept flipping all the way to the back and end up doing zoology. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's really nice. fascinating to me. That's really cool. <laughs> of animals. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and the nice thing now is now in my research, since I, I live in San Diego, and, and this was one of my sampling sites, and I worked uh, pretty closely with Scripps, it's, or I was fortunate to work closely with uh, Scripps New Oceanography and people there, um, and yeah, definitely owe a lot of, of my collections to their support too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so now that I just do computational work, it's really great that I can continue kind of wrapping up my PhD stuff um, almost as a little bit of a hobby, I guess. I wouldn't yeah. say a hobby. It's still a lot of work, but uh, it's just it's just a different mindset when, you know, your degree or, you know, some other pressure doesn't depend on an experiment working out or not. You're like, okay, well, I don't know. It's, it's You feel less stressed, more relaxed. And in some ways, you almost do a little bit better with it because you know that you're really doing it because you just really love yeah. it. Uh, when you are writing your papers or, you know, back when you defended your PhD, mm -hmm. uh, what were some of the main takeaways that you tried to present about using this, you know, big data uh, regarding these cone snails? Yeah, the main, the main story that I wanted to push or the main take home I wanted to push for people was um, one is that venoms are extremely underutilized in the microbiome world and microbiology. And with such few studies, I mean, there's just so many reasons to explore microbiomes and venoms because, you know, there's, like I said, there's so many 
hundreds of thousands of venomous animals, and um, they're also different. And so that presents a lot of uh, interesting possibilities for microbial biodiversity and um, understanding how these microbes might be contributing to a host as kind of another framework for uh, fundamentally understanding microbial ecology, because a lot of that understanding is based from human gut microbiome stuff. And then I would say maybe the squid vibrio system is another one, mm-hmm. the big one. And there's a few other ones as well. Um, and then, so that was a one take home was just really trying to emphasize that this is an under explored uh, discipline that warrants more studies and, and more, more people contributing. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of biomedical applications to this research, and there's a lot of ecological applications to this research. And so, um, you know, you were mentioning about um, living in urban areas. So, yes, these animals are found in urban areas, and we looked at um, their shell shape and size in very urban areas. So, California and Baja are really great locations to look at this because California about 150 years ago was nowhere near as populated as it is now. And Mm -hmm. LA is one of the most populated cities in the world now, right? And so you can really see in real time, uh, not in real time, but you can really almost like kind of realistically track like what the changes are in like LA, like these animals living in LA and around the coast there versus in Monterey. So these are these are really interesting questions that we can explore about climate change and then also about uh, any application to human health and drug discovery. Mm-hmm. From uh, people that you've interacted with, do you think that members of the general public are, um, you know, like interested in ecology? And what do you think is the collective feeling towards biological research or bioinformatics? I think, you know, watching all of this coronavirus kind of news feed and also my own family, um, you know, we use WhatsApp a lot because we're all over. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, I, I've been, there's kind of like a joke going around about, you know, getting forwarded, um, you know, fake news articles from like elderly family and WhatsApp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, basically me or like any, any scientist really haven't like, okay, that's not, a, that's not, or any researcher having like, okay, that's not um, a sound article. Yeah. Or, like what's the evidence for that? And asking those questions. So it's, it's, it's been really interesting to me and informative in that it's, it's good and that people are definitely curious and they want to be informed. So that's good that people are curious. They want to know what's going on. They want to know what's happening, when it's happening. Mm -hmm. That tells me that people are really interested in in all types of science. And that's a really good sign. Mm -hmm. And I think the bad side of that is, you know, they, there is this other side where, you know, if you read a few articles, that is not the same as being an expert. Um, And so, you know, that is something I think we as researchers really need to work more towards and saying, you know, this, and and I think, I don't think we do a good job. I think we're very patronizing a lot of the time, Uh, even, you know, me making this WhatsApp joke, right? And, And I had to have a conversation with my family and say, you know, I really, you know, appreciate that you're sharing these things with me, but I think out of everyone, you know, and then trying to ask questions, say like, you know, why do you believe this is true? Like, what what is your reasoning for, for thinking that this is right versus kind of a more accusatory or patronizing stance of, oh, you know, that's wrong or like, you're not the expert here, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would say, I would say overall, I'm definitely in the group of people that thinks, uh, I think people are really excited about science and bioinformatics and, and, and just curious in general. 
Um, and I think it's really part of our duty as researchers to properly share what we're finding. And I mm -hmm. found in my graduate studies, including people as part of my process of my work. So I, I used Twitter a lot in my graduate studies or like the latter half of my graduate studies. And it was actually a really great way to keep people updated and engaged in what I was doing. And at some point people would start to share with me things that they would find. And, hmm. you know, instead of, you know, uh, it's also tiring to get that, but um, I think instead of being like, oh man, you know, here's another person, you know, I think it's just exciting. For me, it's very exciting when people, uh, they are interested enough in, in whatever I'm doing, um, mm -hmm. you know, to go and share something. And, and I think that's something to me where it says, you know, this is a solvable problem when it comes to, um, you know, our budgets getting cut for science or research or, um, you know, people not believing in climate change. I think these are solvable problems that um, with the right uh, tools and communication, we could, mm -hmm. we could figure out. And it would, it would really take a lot of effort, I think, on, on our part, a collective effort on the part of the scientific community. Yeah. But um, I've, I've really seen some, some good things come out of just sharing my research in whatever forms I can with people. Mm -hmm. And everybody has their own types of questions about things. And I think it's about you know, just being open to however someone's going to ask you a question and, mm -hmm. and being genuinely ready to talk with them about it. And, and I often, I, it really improves my own research as well. So yeah, mm -hmm. I guess in summary, I would say, I, I think people have been pretty, uh, have received these, these discussions pretty well. Yeah. Um, but I also would say it's been maybe, you know, based on my mood, definitely if I'm, if I'm, feeling a little grumpy or, you know, if I'm being condescending or anything, that's not going to work. Um, yeah. So I think that's something that we all need to be mindful of. I think that yeah. uh, a lot of scientists are also, you know, we're experts in different things, Yeah. but there are certainly medical professionals and epidemiologists who right. know a lot more about this pandemic than others. Right. Right. So sometimes like being a good scientist, being a responsible scientist is also admitting what you don't know, what you can't answer. Right. So if someone asks a question and you don't know, then you have to say, I don't know, <laughs> or point them to someone else. Uh, exactly. Yes. Yeah, so I had a friend who asked me about uh, getting, you know, the, the probability of getting reinfected. And then they were asking about like symptoms. And I was like, this is this is out of I just said, you know, this is something that is out of my expertise. And here are some people that I'd recommend. And even, you know, maybe consulting a doctor, a medical doctor, <laughs> which I am not. And so I think I definitely agree. I think, you know, it's also a responsibility to you know, know where we are. And, and it's hard to sometimes place ourselves and say, okay, we can actually share something. Um, we have something we can offer versus saying, okay, I mm -hmm. know things, but I don't know enough about this. So this is who you can talk to. Um, and, and that I think, you know, just making those mm -hmm. parallels or analogies where, you know, okay, well, um, going to a pediatrician versus going to a surgeon. You know, you're going to go to different doctors for different things and similar with scientists. You know, you're going to go talk to different specialists with expertise for different things. And yeah, I, I definitely think we could be better. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it's going in that direction, but I think we could improve in that area as well mm -hmm. right now. I, uh, my, <laughs> my family WhatsApp is a, is a lot different because um, all of my family, most of them are in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what they do 
is of course recommended by uh, health professionals mm. like and you know as we know like in places like Taiwan or Japan or South Korea and uh, Hong Kong the 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 control over the situation is mm -hmm. uh, quite good right right <laughs> and all the tips about like you know proper ways to put on your face mask and how to properly like isolate like all of these things were stuff they were already doing in january wow so for me living in the netherlands or seeing other friends in europe the uk yeah. north america in my family group it's like all of them have the great advice and i'm the one like taking notes and Very different. <laughs> just trying to listen to 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 it because the the response uh, at least here where i live in the netherlands has been like uh, a bit late and also sometimes not i you know not the same as uh, how things were handled in mm -hmm. hong kong and then on top of that, uh, people are people around. Some people are not sort of taking that advice on board. Right. And so I, I probably have the misinformation. You know, if I if I dare share <laughs> what I have going on over here with uh, my family, right. my family would tell me off. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's a good point too. And that um, definitely, California, we are, are, you know, on a state level. People are taking mm -hmm. it more seriously than another state. One of my friends that is based in NYC was telling me that, you know, people are out on the beach and they just don't care and they're just doing whatever. And, you know, that's one of the worst places yeah. to be right now for for us in the U.S. And so, you know, it's it's definitely, yeah, that that is difficult to know you know, what's the right way to inform someone. At some point, you know, mm -hmm. people are going to do what they want and, uh, we can only do what we can to inform and hope that, you know, maybe they look back and they reflect mm -hmm. and they realize, oh, that wasn't, yeah. you know, the best choice. Um, definitely, there are definitely friends of mine who I think that first two weeks or so uh, were in a, a certain level of denial mm -hmm. and, you know, just kind of continuously trying to inform and share things and, and um, you know, connect them to other information you know, within a month or so that really kind of went 180. And it seemed to me that it really, that the, the main relationship being that it was when, mm -hmm. you know, they would maybe know someone who knew someone that got it. And then that would really change their perspective, um, which is interesting. And in that in, for a lot of things, a lot of the time uh, when someone is going to believe something or not, it really has to affect them on a personal level before they will start listening. Yeah, it has to relate right. to them has to resonate in some way. This sort of relates to something that you mentioned at the very beginning, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure actually something that might help with this is like improving that sort of literacy about what data means. Um, and you also mentioned that you, you really want to, with scripts, try and make sure that, you know, big open data science actually uh, will be useful to underserved communities. Right. Um, I'm wondering like, where, where do you think that your work is uh, going to go you know, in the next few months or, or years? Mm -hmm. uh, well, so right now I'm still in a learning process, but um, that I think is starting to shift a little bit because I'm, I'm starting to put together um, some curriculum for uh, our upcoming mm -hmm. Applied Bioinformatics course. And, you know, once, I think once I am able to get that um, kind of sorted out and, you know, maybe improve a bit more on my own skills this summer. Uh, then I would start one at one conversation we had had was doing kind of code reviews at public libraries. Um, I think public libraries are a great space where you have mm -hmm. people who are very, very different 
collect in the same place. Um, San Diego has a, a relatively large homeless population. And I think there are a lot of people who are, um, you know, coming from um, disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds who have a lot of helpful contributions they can make um, to the community, whether it's, you know, their immediate community or the scientific community or whatever. And I think, um, at least in my personal opinion, I think a lot of the time people uh, feeling like they have a place is, is a really important factor in, um, you know, them being able to move forward with their own life or feel okay with what they're doing or, or whichever. And so, so one thing I would really like to do that I've talked a little bit with our research institute is um, having events at uh, libraries that are open to everybody from, you know, children to our homeless population to um, people who, uh, you know, maybe only speak a uh, language other than English, because um, we have some some functions where we can translate um, our code to, and so so these are initiatives that I would like to get involved with in the longer term. And you know, right now it's difficult to know how that would be sorted. Um, you know, for as long as we'll be doing kind of social distance, but. Uh, you know, I might I might be trying some things out with this course, uh, depending on if we will be mm-hmm. uh, meeting in person or doing things online. And so that's how I might apply um, to those. But I think, yeah, I think public spaces are a good place that I would like to start. Mm-hmm. And again, I think everyone has this kind of their own, you know, curious, uh, own curiosity about something. Yeah. And... I think that it's really a great opportunity to, you know, there's so many studies showing that diversity in uh, science makes a big difference for innovation Mm -hmm. and uh, progress. And if we extend that to people who we don't traditionally view as scientists, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's another perspective that we really could benefit from in strengthening, you know, how we operate our databases or how we analyze our data. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's you know, being able to contribute to people's um, data literacy in that way, um, I think could also feed back directly into uh, really strengthening how we approach bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's something that I am thinking or uh, I guess as a, as a project of mine for the future. And it's, I feel really grateful and fortunate to um, definitely be part of a group uh, where people are really interested in trying out those ideas and they really believe in that. Yeah. Um, so that, so that's been really great because I've definitely been in other settings where people are like, that's a waste of time oh. or, you know, why, uh, you know, what's that really going to help? And, um, you know, just having that openness of people being like, yeah, let's just try it and let's see what happens um, is really great. And, and people really believing in, in the importance of, of the public um, being connected to what we do. That's really good. Uh, yeah. I, I hope, uh, you know, virtual or not, uh, you know, I hope it, it goes well. Uh, and I hope that you, you know, get to do some meaningful work that you, you know, you're, you're setting out to do. 
Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, if, if people want to ask you any questions about your interview or they want to follow this work that you're doing, can they find you on Twitter or, or somewhere else? Yeah, of course. My my DMs are open um, as long as nobody is sending me anything inappropriate. Uh, I will respond to DMs or, uh, yeah, that's that's probably the best way. Um, I, I'm sure that you'll have something up and so they can comment there or they can send me something or, um, you know, ask me a question. And, and you know, I'm always... Uh, I'm always surprised, pleasantly surprised by the people that I've become friends with through the power of the internet and I guess Twitter in particular, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess including you, I think we've connected yeah. through Twitter and, and this is really great. And there's definitely friends I've made over the years um, that started as you know, colleagues or collaborators or just, just people being on the internet, looking at other people posting on the internet. <laughs> um, I think that's really great, especially right now. It's It's nice to have that feeling of... Uh, yeah, community. And so, yeah, of mm-hmm. course, if anyone has any questions for me at any time, um, they can they can ask me through there. And, um, you know, there's more detailed things they like to ask me about my research then or now or whatever. Um, they can always feel welcome. Yeah. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Michael, again, for for hosting me and doing doing this work. This was really great to have these oh. available to the public to of listen course, to. Of course, of <laughs> course. I, I do them. Uh, as long as one person listens out there, then I feel like I've done my job. Like I have gotten the experts' words, uh, you know, straight from their mouths talking about the work that they do and, you know, transferred it to somebody's uh, earbuds. And yeah, that's the whole idea of SciComm, I think. Yeah. Well, when it comes to the end of the episode, I also like to ask the guest if they can come up with a hashtag mm. so that listeners can uh, indicate that they've heard it all the way through. So can you think of a, a good hashtag for this one? Hmm. Um, maybe maybe it could be like sub bio info, like S-A-B, like the first part of my name and then bio info. Mm-hmm. I'm just combining my first name with bio info, the first part <laughs> of my first syllable of my first name with bio info. Ah, that works. <laughs> cool. Uh, I think that's pretty unique. Uh, and so listeners, if you want to indicate on social media that you heard all the way through, then definitely use that hashtag on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Pod. Thank you so much to the patrons who support the show every month. If you listening right now are not yet a patron and want to support this public anthropology and archaeology communication project, then do go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod to find out how you can support the show. New episodes come out on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you find podcasts, as well as arcananth.com, where I'll be including a bunch of links as well to do with this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was great. It was great to talk to you. And I hope that you are having a great rest of the day in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I hope uh, you too. Uh, you know, we're time zones apart. Um, I actually was going to go to LA for a conference. And oh. if it wasn't for this, I would be in LA right now. Oh, okay. Well, you know, anytime you do find yourself here when the time comes, yeah. you know. No, always you always have a place to visit. Oh yeah, cool. And I would love that. There's so much good food in LA, so that's that's basically my my main interest whenever <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, listeners. I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks. Thank you.